You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, what about your dad? Was He was in the military, right? Uh, my father was a career Air Force guy, and uh, he was in that timeline where everybody went to Vietnam. Um, so he uh, he did a total of 28 years in the Air wow. Force. The, okay. uh, being a mil- yeah, being a military brat, you went to a lot of schools, right? Different schools? Uh, I did. I was fortunate to go to five different schools in three different countries before I was 12 years old. <laughs> Holy cow. And uh, I, I had talked to you once before, and you mentioned that uh, you went to school for a while in Japan when your father was stationed there. Tell the folks what it's like uh, in Japan these days. Uh, well, I can't talk about these days, but from 1970 to 1975, it was an incredible place for for a kid to grow up in their early to mid-teens. Um, an incredibly safe environment. The mass uh, transit system allowed you to go all over the place. Um, and uh, we even, it, it was so safe that we would even take three or four guys who were 13 years old at the time, uh, take a train out to the end of the line, hike another four or five miles up towards the creek and camp out for the weekend with no parental supervision whatsoever. Um, Of course, one of the dads would pop in unexpectedly uh, just to check on us and make sure we weren't doing anything we weren't supposed to be doing, so... Uh, Japanese are fairly protective of children, I believe, aren't they? Very much so. Very much so. Uh, at, at that time, um, if you had a problem, you could walk up to any house, knock on the door, just say telefono, and uh, whoever was there at home would go pick up the phone, get an English-speaking operator on the line for you, and just hand you the phone. Wow. Wow. I don't think I try that in Detroit these days. Uh, uh, where did you end up graduating from high school? Uh, finished up at Hillcrest High School in Dalzell, South Carolina, right outside of Shaw Air Force Base. All right. And uh, out of high school, tell the listeners, why the Citadel? Why did you choose the Citadel for your college? Uh, I was a lucky guy. I applied to a lot of schools all along the East Coast, and and uh, I was accepted. And um, I got this brochure from the Citadel and thought, well, this looks different. I'll go take a look. They had a, they had a weekend visitation program where you could go and uh, you'd stay in the barracks with other mem- members of the freshman class and kind of see what their life was like. And uh, um, after I had that experience, this guy with uh, with shoulder-length hair went back home and told Mom and Dad that he was going to the Citadel. <laughs> uh 
tell the listeners a little bit about life at the Citadel, uh, what it's like for you. What's, what's the difference between going to like Florida State University or the University of Georgia? Uh, explain a little bit about that. Well, first of all, um, you know, every school evolves a little bit along the way. And uh, I'd, I'd say the biggest, uh, the biggest difference is that at UGA or FSU, uh, nobody plays a bugle at 6 o'clock in the morning and makes you roll <laughs> out into a formation at 6.30 so you can go eat breakfast, march to the mess hall. Um, and they don't have noon formations and they don't have evening formations for dinner and they don't march a formal parade every Friday afternoon at 3.15. Uh, they don't do drill on, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, it's, the Citadel is a very regimented environment and, uh, your time is very strictly controlled. And the bottom line is you don't have enough time to do everything that needs to be done. So you learn how to manage time a lot more than I, I mean, I never went to UGA. So, uh, but I assume that it's a much freer environment. Um, I don't know. I guess well, that's really the, the biggest part of it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you'll hear a bugle at six o'clock in the morning at UGA. <laughs> uh, I remember we talked to you once. You said that Citadel is a place uh, you don't want to be, but you want to be from there. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much perfect. Yeah, um, <laughs> nobody wants to be there because it's not a comfortable environment. Um, but uh, as as you said. It's, uh, it's a great place to be from. The, uh, the guys that wear that band of gold have got a reputation, and uh, most people will assume that they're dealing with an honorable person if they see that ring. Uh, yes, that's a good way to say it. What about the attrition rate? Uh, like your freshman year, how many guys make it? Is there a big fallout? Uh, can some guys not handle it? Well, um, you know, we're talking generically now because uh, it's a co-ed institution now. Um, and uh, that's that's a good thing. Um, I think it actually adds to the experience and um, makes it better. But, uh, yeah, the attrition rate is... Uh, pretty high. Um, you've got some folks that, you know, you show up on day one and uh, uh, as soon as they march you over to the barbershop and get your hair cut, there are some folks that say, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> there, are, uh, there are folks that, um, uh, I don't know what they call it now, back, in, back then it was called Hell Week that uh, you get through Hell Week and they go, nope, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, you lose some more at Thanksgiving. You lose more at Christmas. You lose more at spring break. You lose more that don't come back for sophomore year. So uh, for the most part, I think 
at, at least for us, uh, our attrition rate was somewhere around eh, probably 40% wow. or more by the time you got uh, senior year. Wow. Wow. I, I, a lot of folks have always heard about the Citadel. Uh, they didn't even know where it is, but it is on the ocean uh, in South Carolina. Is that correct? The Ashley River. Uh-huh. The Ashley River, just upriver from Charleston Harbor and then the open ocean. You are correct. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to do a first break here in just a minute. But you, uh, you grew up with Air Force Dad, and I guess you just wanted to fly from an early age. Is that that's what you were thinking about why you joined the Air Force? Yeah, it sure is. I was uh I was lucky enough. I think my I think my first flight was a local going from uh Charlotte Douglas uh up towards New Jersey and then a uh C one eighteen out to Bermuda. Um and I don't know, I I was hooked. Yeah, I can understand that. I uh Flew the small planes. The station manager, David Moxley, has his license. He flew the small planes. Uh, you just absolutely fall in love with aviation. So, so like getting up there and touching the face of God. I think you can relate to that, uh, Chris. Uh, listen, we're going to our first break, and we'll be right back. Folks, stand by. We'll be talking to with uh, uh, Colonel Chris Coley in just a minute. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I would also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army with training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering. An Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Colonel Chris uh, Coley, graduate of the Citadel and also uh, retired from the Air Force. Uh, Chris, if you will, explain what a pilot contract is while you're at the Citadel. Um, okay. You know, you got some people that are there on a full scholarship um, all four years, and then you got other people that... In between your sophomore and junior year, they're offered a contract to go active duty military at, uh, at graduation. And then that contract is often for a specific job. I was offered a pilot contract in the Air Force in August of 1979. And what that meant was I enlisted in the Air Force Reserves 
spent uh, the last two years while I was at Citadel in the uh, inactive Air Force Reserves, and uh, they put me through a flight screening program to see if I had the aptitude to uh, to be successful at pilot training. And uh, then after an FAA check ride, um, they uh, they gave me the the blessing, Omni Omni VOR, and uh, um, upon graduation, we uh, we did our graduation in our Citadel formal uniforms, uh, hauled tail back to the barracks, changed into our Air Force uniforms, and went to our commissioning ceremony. Wow. And then it you was... Gradu- you graduated in uh, 81, is that correct? Yeah, May of 81. All right. All right, well, you graduated. There you are. I, I, I believe at that time you are a Butterbar second lieutenant. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. All right. That's it. Tell me about your first assignment, your first airplane. Go ahead. Let's go to your first uh, uh, training session. Okay, uh, Lubbock, Texas, Reese Air Force Base, and you go through a ground instruction program that lasts about a month, and then you're off to fly the T-37 in my day. Now it's a, um, uh, a Toscano or something like that. Anyway, it was a side-by-side twin jet, um, and... By the time you uh, by the time you graduated from the T thirty seven phase, they would tell you that you were essentially the equivalent to uh, uh, a commercial pilot that would be flying in in a regional airline. Um, and then uh, after that, if if everybody is successful, you move on to the back in my day T thirty eight phase. And that's a tandem, one in front of the other, two engine with uh, afterburner. Mm-hmm. So um, under the right conditions, it was uh, supersonic capable, and oh, okay. uh, that made for that made for some interesting times. <laughs> um, you uh, you graduate from the T thirty eight phase. And, and that whole process, that ground school, the T-37s, T-38s, that was basically a year-long process, uh, 52 weeks. At wow. the end of that, everybody gets their assignment for their uh, follow-on mission aircraft, and uh, you go to the four winds, basically, wherever the uh, primary schoolhouse for your major weapon system is. Mine was in Merced, California. I went to go fly the KC-135s, um, and I was lucky enough to do that for about eight different models of the 135 in a couple of different um, major weapon systems, uh, the EC-135 as an example, and I got to do that at uh, at the squadron wing and uh, numbered Air Force level for about 13 years, I guess. Okay, well, explain to the readers, because they may not understand what the KC-135 is, 
explain exactly what the function is of the KC-135. Uh, the KC-135 is a flying gas station. And right. Yeah, and what it, what it really does, it, it uh, extends the range and uh, loiter time for any other major weapon system. So, you know, if you're trying to get uh, uh, B-2s flying across the Atlantic Ocean to engage a target somewhere in, for example, Southwest Asia, um, use use 135s flying gas stations to extend their range so they can make it in and out without having to land anywhere outside the continental United States if you don't want them to. Uh, yeah. It's the only way you're going to get a, a fighter across the ocean unless you're going to break them down, put them on a ship, and send them across <laughs> the, the seas. Um, yeah. So that's an example. Another example is, say, during, uh, during Desert Storm, uh, you might have to do post-strike refuelings for airplanes that had spent a little more time over their target than they had initially planned. Um, and in a couple of cases, um, tankers have actually been able to pull fighters out of harm's way. Uh, I know of one example in uh, in Vietnam and another mm-hmm. one in uh, Desert Storm. I'm sure there are more out there. Yes, sir, there are. I talked to a KC-135 pilot who did that in Vietnam. Uh, wow. Okay, you, now you mentioned you mentioned the EC-135. I bet a lot of the folks don't know what that is. What is that? Well, that's the electronic combat version, and... Uh, there are several different versions of that. Some of them are flying command posts, um, and some of them are radio relay birds. And, you know, in, uh, in the worst circumstances, the ability to uh, act as a radio relay bird and keep everybody informed as to what's going on is, uh, is a wonderful thing, I guess. Uh, by the same token, an airborne command post that basically has the, uh, the same capabilities as the old strategic air command headquarters in, uh, Offutt, um, hmm. to include, uh, command and control of nuclear missiles. Wow. All right. You know, we, we had mentioned and talked once before, Chris, about, uh, in World War II, the pilots were short. The bombers' uh, pilots were taller because the fighter cockpits were uh, so small. Uh, that's probably changed now. But you did mention not so much for the new fighter, the F-22, a stealth fighter. Uh, ex- explain that to us about the F-22. Well, from what I understand, the uh, in order to take a take advantage of all the capabilities of the ejection system, the F-22 pilots have to be six feet tall or shorter and weigh no more than 185 pounds. So um, I 
as we discussed, there are there are a lot of folks that are on very special diets to make sure that their their frame doesn't exceed 185 pounds. Wow. Okay. All right. And I want to discuss with you. You said you were in the, I believe, the officers club one time, and you learned a lesson about uh, volunteering in the Air Force. Tell me about that incident. Oh Lord. Um, yeah, I was uh, I was going through our model difference training at one of my many courses in uh, Castle Air Force Base. And uh, my flying partner was actually my own operations officer. So we were in the club on Friday night, and uh, this older gentleman walks up and uh, asks if he could join us. And, you know, sure, have a seat. And uh, he had this little trick he did with his little finger. He would get the attention of one of the uh, bartenders and just wiggle his little finger and, uh, of course, I'm finding out all this after the fact. Uh, they knew that that meant he wanted a rum and Coke with a lime twist. They called it a Cooper <laughs> Libra back then, I guess. Uh, anyway, so this uh, this guy sits down. He chats with us for a while. And uh, he said, looks at me and he says, hey, I just wanted to uh, take advantage of this opportunity to meet you. Uh, and by the way, you're coming to work for me in, uh, October of this year. And I think it was probably about May at the time. I said, no, I'm sorry, sir. You're misinformed. This assignment is volunteer only. And I made it very clear coming out of instructor school that I was not a volunteer for the schoolhouse. He just smiled and said, okay, uh, take care. And uh, shortly after that, I learned that uh, my definition of a volunteer and the Air Force's definition of volunteer was two different things. If you had a uh, active duty service commitment, you were a volunteer by definition because they owned you for whatever period of time that active duty service commitment was. And, of course, I had been going to so many schools in the previous five years that my active duty service commitment was well past the three years required to do an assignment at the schoolhouse. Mm -hmm. um, but as it turned out, that, uh, that older gentleman was wrong. Uh, I did not go to work for him in October. It wasn't until November that I showed up. <laughs> God bless the military. Uh, all right, uh, Chris, we are going to our uh, next break. When we get back, I'm going to let you run with the ball a little bit. And uh, you were called up for, well, not called up, but you were uh, involved in Desert Shield and a Desert Storm uh, starting in August of 1990. Uh, you have experience at Diego Garcia, which I think a lot of people are very, very interested in hearing. And then you can explain what the LPO Club is. Folks, we'll be right back with Colonel Chris Colley. Stand by. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. 
Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and Warriors to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who have been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you at noon on January 28th. And want to remind everyone that we've got a couple of things uh, going on. On January the 15th, we will have... Lee Greenwood on, be interviewing Lee Greenwood on America's Web Radio, which I'm looking forward to. And uh, I hope you will mark your calendars for January the 15th at 10 o'clock. Also want to uh, remind everybody that we've got a wonderful, absolutely wonderful Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame in downtown Atlanta. The uh, director of it is Rick White, Colonel Rick White, retired. And uh, he has done just an absolutely fabulous job. We also have the Healing Wall out in Johns Creek, Georgia, at Newtown Park that you can visit anytime. That's a replica of the wall, the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. And uh, that wall traveled all over the country and brought healing to a lot of folks. And now it has a, a permanent home in Newtown Park in George in Johns Creek, Georgia. So keep that in mind if you're traveling this way or if you live here and you haven't been. So with that being said, you're listening to America's Web Radio, a great show talking about the Citadel, and we're going to turn it back to Pete right now. Okay, somebody joke. We back on date. Yes, sir. Okay, folks, sorry about that. All right, uh, Chris, I'm going to let you run with the ball there, sir. You uh, were involved in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Here's the shovel pass. Run with it, Chris. Okay. Uh, I would say that uh, I had a very minor role in the process, but um, if I remember correctly, Saddam Hussein came across the, the line and claimed Kuwait as his uh, missing prefecture, state, whatever you want to call it. And uh, that happened the first week of August. And uh, I found myself going out the door uh, just a couple of weeks later on a 30-day temporary duty assignment. Um, I had uh, had a pretty good job. First, I went to Anderson Air Force Base, Guam, and uh, we had just closed out the 40th bomb wave, 
and we were pretty much drawn down its final assets when uh, we showed up to to build a school to teach eight H model B fifty two guys to fly G model B fifty twos, and uh, so we did that for a few months and. Uh, we would move folks from the our Ford deployed B-52G schoolhouse on Anderson Air Force Base, Guam, to Diego Garcia. And uh, that allowed us to get assets within reach without having to uh, um, put any bomber assets on Arabian soil. And, uh, of course, you can imagine the advantages of doing that. Um, Early on, you know, during the Desert Shield phase, we had pretty much built a speed bump with the 82nd Airborne uh, just in case they decided to leave Kuwait and come across into Saudi Arabia. you got to admit those are some brave guys that were that were standing that line, and uh, the B-52s at Diego Garcia would have been uh, their primary protectors during that time. Um, anyway, um, you know Diego Garcia is a small little horseshoe atoll in the British Indian Ocean territory. And uh, one side of the atoll is a defunct banana plantation. The other side, uh, the Brits own the, well, they own the whole atoll, but uh, the Brits have a station set up that they allow us to to, uh, partner with them. And uh, during Desert Shield, we built a new runway and the old runway became the parallel taxiway. Uh, we had uh, B-52Gs, KC-10s, and KC-135s on site so that uh, we could basically provide overwatch for all the assets that were flowing in during the Desert Shield phase. And then everybody knows what happened in uh, January of the following year. Yeah, uh, Diego Garcia. I I looked that up last night. That atoll looks remarkably like Tarawa, the, the Pacific Island in World War II. It's not very big. Uh, what kind of facilities did you guys have uh, at uh, Diego Garcia? Well, uh, when we first moved assets in. Uh, everybody was living in tents and, uh, they were using the wooden pallets, um, from all the things that we were shipping in. That was what was keeping their feet dry inside the tents. Cause when it all started, it rained like crazy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, then as time went on, uh, they, they poured concrete pads. And I, I don't remember the name. There's a special deployment kit. I think it's called uh, 
Desert Eagle or Desert Falcon or something like that. Um, that it's got these really fancy um, facilities that you pour a concrete pad, you take this this uh, pallet out, set it on the concrete pad, hook it up to electricity, and an HVAC unit basically inflates the entire thing. Um, it's uh, heated, air-conditioned, and uh, you can put about eight folks in there if you're doing an open bay environment. Uh, if you're having to coordinate off, uh, I never saw that, so I would guess probably half of that, maybe four folks. Um, they built the uh, pagodas so that we had uh, gang showers and gang latrines. Um, <laughs> not the uh, um, not the most private environment, uh, but certainly certainly better than uh, uh, than the old school where you have to um, burn the fifty five gallon barrels of uh, waste, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I mean, during, uh, during that period of time, we went from very primitive environment to uh, something that I would consider to be completely livable and, and uh, even luxurious if you had been there in the beginning. <laughs> it sounds like it. And uh, uh, right before they went in, uh, take Kuwait back they sent you back to Guam to train more guys or something like that is that correct yeah yeah they did um, after uh, after an area orientation there out of uh, out of Diego then I went back to Guam and, and yeah uh, doing the same thing runway supervisory officer um Operations officer, flight safety officer, and uh, I guess scheduler, coordinator, whatever. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty unique environment. I was a very lucky guy. I got uh, I got to see and do an awful lot of things that most Air Force captains don't get uh, don't get to see. Yeah. And uh, tell us about the uh, LPO club. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm sure everybody remembers that Desert Storm was the uh, infamous 100-hour war. Um, and uh, thankfully, it was that short. Um, anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm back at Guam and... They've got this thing set up where every once in a while you get to make a phone call home. And so I was on the phone with Lisa, my wife, and uh, she said, hey, when are you coming home? They've, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard, but the war's over. They had this big parade <laughs> in New York City. It's been kind of a big deal. So the war's over. When are you coming home? And I said, "Well, I don't know, babe. the uh, The boss says I'm in the LPO club." And she what she asked me what the LPO club was, and I said, "Well, from what I understand, it's the last plane out." 
Um, <laughs> so as it turned out for me, my 30-day TDY that started in August uh, lasted eight months until April <laughs> of the following year. <laughs> oh, yeah. God bless the military. Uh, all right. Now, you uh, eventually flew the uh, the beast. I mean, the, one, I think probably one of the biggest planes we have, the C-5 uh, Galaxy. Uh, tell us a little bit about that uh, big boy. Well, uh, I guess what happened is after Desert Storm, there was a big reorganization of the Air Force, and I think it happened in 93, and uh, assets that had formerly been assigned to Strategic Air Command were uh, were divvied up, and uh, the bomb droppers were sent to Air Combat Command, and the, all the refueling assets sent to Air Mobility Command. Uh, and Air Mobility Command, having this new weapon system, decided that, you know, we need to kind of cross-flow people back and forth between these things so that we uh, get more experience throughout the young folks that we're raising up right now. So with me coming out of Air Command and Staff College, they sent me to fly C-5s at Dover Air Force Base. Um, the uh, the Ninth Airlift Squadron Pelicans were uh, uh, just a fantastic environment for a new guy to the C-5. And uh, I learned an awful lot. They, uh, they kept me out of trouble. And uh, I went to go be an operations officer in the support squadron. And then they sent me off to the Pentagon to be a programmer for a couple of years. And after after that, uh, we were running short of aviators to fill the cockpits. So I got to go back to the 9th Airlift Squadron at Dover Air Force Base. And since I had only been gone uh, about two years... I got to do a local requalification, and they gave me the opportunity to be the commander of the 9th Airlift Squadron. I got to do that for about 17, 18 months, and uh, that was a very different world, obviously, from flying a 135. C5A, what kind of a, a load can a C5 Galaxy carry? Well, a C-5 has got uh, 36 pallet positions in the cargo hold. Um, as an example, uh, the C-17 has got 18, half of that. Um, the, uh, the C-5 also has a separate passenger compartment that can carry 75 combat loaded troops. Um, it's got a, uh, a courier compartment that when the airplane was built, you know, we used to have to hand carry classified documents from one location to the other instead of this spiffy hit a send button that we get to do now. Uh, hmm. so they had a compartment specifically for those folks. It's uh, got 
a crew rest compartment so that theoretically, uh, when the airplane was built, they thought, well, you know, we're, uh, we're like a ship. You're only making money when the ship's at sea. So we'll have two crews on board the airplane. One will be flying. The other will be in crew rest. And uh, we can just keep the airplane going all the time. Uh, wow. All right, Chris, we're going to our last break. And then we'll come back and also talk about the C-17, which is smaller but can be utilized uh, in different ways than the big C-5 Galaxy. Folks, we'll be right back. Okay, <laughs> talking about running a little bit behind, I think the world's running a little bit behind these days. But anyway, uh, I want to mention again, um, if you've never been to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, please put that on your schedule to go down and take a look at it. It's downtown Atlanta, right across the street from the Capitol building in the old Floyd building. And uh, it can be a, a full day, easily a full day, and they've got a, a great cafeteria there. So take the time to put it down, and then after you get through with that day, you can put on your schedule to come out to uh, Johns Creek, Georgia, and visit the uh, Wall that Heals. And uh, it's a great, oh, it's a great place on a pretty day just to walk around in, in Johns Creek and the uh, Newtown Park and the walkway and experience the the wall that heals. And uh, we'd love to have you out there, and I think you'd find that it was fantastic. As I mentioned before, January the 15th, 10 o'clock, mark your calendar. We're going to have Lee Greenwood on, and he's going to – he'll be uh, hosting uh, an event coming up, uh, Warriors for Hope. And uh, – He's going to be, they're going to have some fantastic items to sell. And, um, we'll, I tell you what, we're going to end it there because I'm taking up too much of Pete's time. And he has a very interesting guest on today from the Citadel. And, uh, we will, uh, turn it back over to him. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And so with that being said, Pete, it's all yours. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, we're talking to Colonel Chris Coley today. Uh, Chris, you had such a great career and so diversified career. Uh, I could have you on a three or four weeks in a row and probably not get your whole story. But you did fly the C-5 Galaxy, which was a huge airplane. Then you flew the C-17, which was a little bit smaller, but could get into areas where the uh, C-5 couldn't get into. But I want you to uh, finish off this interview. Basically, uh, you got involved after 9-11 with flying into Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm going to let you – here's another shovel pass. I'm going to pass the ball to you and let you run with Iraq and Afghanistan. Go ahead. All right. Well, I guess now, now we're in that environment where Lisa tells everybody I couldn't keep a job. Um, yeah. So now I'm uh, I'm on to my third major weapon system, I guess, the C-17, and uh, I was coming out of a staff job, and uh, I'm very fortunate in that I found out I had been promoted to uh, 06, and the boss asked me what I wanted to do, 
what my dream job would be. And I said, well, I'd sure love to be the deputy ops group commander at Charleston Air Force Base. Um, I had married a Charleston girl that I met back in my federal days. And um, somewhere along the line, I discovered that I was always coming back to Charleston. I just didn't know it. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so... Uh, they sent me to back to Altus Air Force Base to learn how to fly the C-17 and uh, then moved me to Charleston where I had a great opportunity to work for a guy named Bill Bender and my immediate boss, the ops group commander, and uh, Brooks Bash, the wing commander. Um, shortly after I got to Charleston, um, we had... Uh, the wing commander had found out that that there were going to be multiple guys um, deployed, multiple leadership guys deployed at the same time, and uh, he wanted to keep a certain base of experience there at Charleston. So he asked me if there was any reason why I shouldn't deploy, and I said no. Um, so the next thing I knew, I was... Uh, uh, I was pinned on early. We we call that being frocked, F-R-O-C-K-E-D. And uh, that basically means that you wear the rank, but you don't get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> and, and I was deployed to be the 362nd Air Expeditionary Group Commander. Um, and that was a fantastic job. We had about 950 folks uh, assigned between um, Rhein-Main Air Air Base in Frankfurt, Germany, and uh, we had a squadron of aeromedical evacuation folks at Ramstein, and our job was to support combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and every mission that we uh, that we launched flying um, downrange was a combat mission, every single one. Um, a, uh, a run to, say, Bagram and back in Afghanistan, uh, that might take you 25 hours or so to do. Wow. Um, when, when we first started, we had basically take, taken over former Soviet fighter bases and uh, and as you can imagine they don't uh, they don't require as much uh, concrete to operate as a heavy airplane does so uh, when we were first going into Bagram you know the uh, they had repaired enough of the runway for us to be able to land and then you would have to put the loadmasters in the paratroop doors as you were turning off of the runway onto the the taxiway, and they would have to tell you how close your main gear were to the edge of the concrete. Um, <laughs> so they were talking you through the turns. And then, of course, you're doing the same thing, coming off the perpendicular to the parallel taxiway. Um the uh so you'd 
you pull onto the parallel, offload your cargo, um, onload what was going outbound, then pull up towards the uh, approach end of the runway, and they had these huge fuel bowsers that were semi-buried in the ground. It's basically a great big, huge plastic bag full of gas. And uh, we'd onload our outbound fuel. And then probably because the the Army guys were not, uh, we're all on night vision goggles. And, you know, there weren't really a whole lot of airfield lighting or anything. So um, the Army guys were not comfortable driving buses out on the taxiway. So often we'd have to go back through that loop one more time to pick up our outbound passengers and uh and then boof you're off and gone back to back to Germany. Um in a rack run might take um about twelve hours and in that uh in that scenario where you might be on the ground for three hours at Bagram, uh at Balad or Baghdad or uh, to Crete or Al-Assad, you know, you might be on the ground for 20 minutes and you don't even shut the engines down. You know, you just put them in idle and, uh, or reverse idle and um, guys take everything off the jet, put your outbound on the jet to include uh, an air medical air evacuation team if necessary. And uh, and then you're out and gone again with less than 20 minutes on the ground in some cases. Well, tell us about the fireworks. Uh, um, well, you know, when we started doing this, when, when I started doing it in 2003, um, there was still uh, a little bit of a... Uh, disagreement in both countries as to (laughs) who was supposed to be there and who was in control of what. Um, So there were some fireworks. Um, The uh, probably more in Iraq at that time, especially uh, Al-Assad is over in Mosul, so you know, there Baghdad and uh, Balad, which was about 40-some-odd miles north of uh, Baghdad. Um, in, uh, in Baghdad and Balad both, uh, you had random people that would come in with a hand-held mortar, and it's really nothing much more fancy than a steel pipe with a uh, a base plate and a nail in the bottom of it. And uh, obviously it's not specifically aimed or anything. It's just wherever the guy wearing the gloves uh, pointing the pipe. And they would, uh, they would randomly launch mortars into the airfield um, from there point of view, they didn't care what they hit. They were really just trying to cause mayhem. Uh, and from our point of view, um, 
you know, we certainly didn't know where they were going and and who needed to hide behind what. Um, so for the most part, we just kept working. Um, and then the Army got to the point to where their, their counter-battery folks were so good that um, those handheld mortar guys, they could never get more than two shots off from a given location before the counter-battery guys just made them disappear. Wow. All right, that, that's, uh, uh, we are really running out of time, Chris. You have such a fascinating story. I wish I had another hour on the air with you. Uh, sir, I know you retired as a full bird colonel. Thank you so much for your service to our country. Uh, I want your final thoughts, and also would you recommend the military for a young young person? Um, yes, I, I definitely would. Um I, I think it's an incredible opportunity to to learn something new, uh, potentially to see part of the world that you might not have an opportunity to see. Uh, but a lot of that kind of kind of depends on your attitude. You know, if you're going to go into it with an attitude that you know this may not be what I want to do when I grow up, um, but it's an opportunity for me to see things, to learn things, and to give me uh, a chance to to do something different, and I'm going to have a great time doing it, and I'm going to learn from mentors that I get exposed to along the way. That kind of person should go into the military. If If you're a person that says, you know, I could never do that. I could never endure that kind of discipline. And if anybody ever started yelling at me, I'd pop them in the mouth. (laughs) That person needs to stay as far away from the military as they possibly can because they're going to jail. Got to go, Pete. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Chris, thank you so much, sir. Uh, It is my honor to interview you. Uh, You've had a great career. Folks, we're going to have to wrap it up. Uh, Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Again, thank you so much, Colonel. Great, great interview. Appreciate it. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.